The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit RestorationSouthside.org. Things there is no law. And Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 29. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, please join our volunteers by the Kids Zone sign. If it is your child's first time in children's church, please go with them so that we can get them checked in. Thank you, Emily. Well, this summer we've um, been going through a sermon series that it's beginning to come to an end uh, on a list that we see in Galatians 5, famously called the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, And it's Paul's way of saying, uh, as you follow Jesus, as you live the Christian life, these things will be evident in your life, but also at the same time, you will have an appetite for these things and they'll grow in you whether they're there right this minute or not. We see the fruit. It's not a list of do-betters, but instead of something that will become a reality if it's not already. And it all goes to show that we're on this journey together. We're all on this journey of experiencing and following and wanting to know more about who Jesus is. If we look to the Wizard of Oz, it's, we're on this yellow brick road. We're going because we've heard about what Oz can do. He's the wonderful wizard um, of Oz. That's where he lives. That's what what he is. But uh, we've heard about what he can do, and we have these specific things in our lives that he can do something with. And so we're going banking on the fact that he is what he says he is. He is what people say he is. His reputation precedes him, and it's correct and congruent. And here we see uh, this crazy question answered in this passage that Matthew 11 that was just read, and it's this question that is, what is Jesus really like? We know about him, we've heard about him, we've heard what he says about himself, what other people say about him, we know what it looks like to maybe from other people to be a Christian and however that sits with us. But what what is Christ, what is Jesus really like? And the 89 chapters in the Gospels, all put together in the four books, uh, we see all stuff. We see the stuff like he, what he teaches, what he says, what he, the way he interacts with people, uh, what he does, what he says about himself, what people say about him. And there's one specific point in all of those chapters and all of those words where we see the veil pulled back and Jesus give us a glimpse into who he really is, what he's really like. And he's not there to shake his finger at you or tap his foot. He's there with open arms. We see that in Matthew 11, that he's gentle and lowly and that it's constant. He's always that. And so this morning, as we kind of explore that and see that, uh, we'll look at three things. First, the, the need for gentleness. The need for gentleness. Second, the person of gentleness. And then the third, the product of gentleness. And so as we begin, would you join me as we pray and ask the Holy Spirit to be with us as we study 
his word. Lord, we come to you and I confess that I'm more afraid of you and I want to maneuver and manipulate my life to avoid you because in my heart of hearts, it's sometimes hard to believe that you're gentle. But I want to do like Adam and Eve did and just run and hide and cover myself up. This very day, would that all be deconstructed because of the fact of who you really are, that you're gentle. Meet us this day, a gentle Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. So first off, we see uh, the need for gentleness. If you were to define gentleness or talk about it and kind of figure out really what it is, you would use other words to kind of define it. That's what a definition is. But uh, you would use words that may relate to it and maybe even feel synonymous, but it really isn't what gentleness is. And, and maybe some of those words are um, passivity. Gentleness is passivity, but, but passivity is really not uh, good in and of itself. Or maybe it's you think of softness, but just having a softness about you isn't really effective. Maybe you think... You know, gentleness is just southern niceness. And really, that's just a bit naive, though it's easy to think. Maybe you think being a gentle is just being a agendaless. Just don't care as much about what you want. But, but gentleness has an agenda. So what is gentleness really like? And it's important from the get-go for us to point out that gentleness is a word in nature that has to do with relationship. It's a relational defining word. It's how people and, and groups of people connect. It defines and explains the way they interact. It's relational. And also, it's revealing. It talks about how people are to each other, but it talks about how people are in themselves, their inner life. There's a gentleness in people. So gentleness is, yes, how we interact with the world, and also how we are. And as we explore that, it's important that we see that our natural disposition is not that of gentleness. We don't naturally choose gentleness, whether we relate it to other people or even receive it from others. We don't love or choose gentleness because of this. It requires us to go at a particular speed and see people in a particular way. Let me show you how it kind of works out. That in my fantasy life, I am the king. In your fantasy life, you are the queen and the king. And in that fantasy life, you have something that you want. There's a desire in your heart that you want done or got or experienced or had. You have a desire in that fantasy life, in that fantasy world. And, and when you run up any resistance against accomplishing or gaining that desire and that agenda... I promise you that you are not reactive with gentleness. That your initial thought is not how you can be gentle at a blocked desire. Gentleness is not the way in which we operate because we want things done. And we see it kind of in two particular ways. We see our need for gentleness. 
If it's not natural to us, we see it in two particular ways. And first, we, we see it, uh, we need it at our worst. That when you are at your worst, when I'm at my worst, I need gentleness. We live in a bombastic age. Surprise, um, log on to Facebook, whatever you do, do with social media, you will figure that out pretty fast. And I say that because the way to communicate my message and for you to hear me, if you don't hear me, is just to say it louder. Just crank up the volume. Instead of changing what I want to say or how I think about things, just crank it up. And when I really run up against resistance, gentleness is too costly and too inefficient to do. And so for me, the way it looks like in my life is that when I, quote unquote, run the tape, I see a need for gentleness at my worst. Because when I run the tape, I play through a scenario where I'm talking or interacting with someone and I'm putting words in their mouth and I'm feeding off those words. And all of a sudden this tension gets so much that I have this mic drop moment where I'm able to drop a truth bomb and all of a sudden win the argument in this hypothetical situation. I run the tape. I'm the king and queen. I run the tape. And this mic drop moment is when I feel most justified. And we see that we need gentleness at our worst because we sever connection when we long to feel justified. With your boss, your coworkers, your friends, your family, your siblings, your parents, your spouse, your children. We need gentleness at our worst because we are a people who long to feel justified in however we want to act, however we want to feel. But also we need gentleness at our best. Yes, that, that we aren't perfect. We need gentleness when we're not perfect, but we need also gentleness when we want things, even good things. Uh, even when we're at our best, we need gentleness because we have this natural tendency to smother and, and choke out the things that we love and the things that we want. At our best, we smother the things that we want to connect with. Let me give you some examples. When we brought our son home from the hospital, he met his older sister, who was a year and a half old at the time. And after she figured out what this thing was that is now in her home, her brother, she went up to him and said, Foxy boy, Foxy boy and proceeded to jump on top of him and totally tickle his face. He probably didn't like that as a day and a half old. Just smothering him with her love. Tommy Boy, 1990s movie. Chris Farley plays this uh, character that his, he's trying to make sure that he keeps his family business intact. His father has run this great auto parts business and he's kept it all together and, and risen it and built it to this empire. His father's now died and there's things have gotten sideways and he has to save the family business. And what he does when he got, does sales is just blow it. He's a terrible salesman. And so he's kind of reflecting on this thought and he's in a restaurant and he's talking to this uh, waitress and he says, I'm a terrible salesman. If someone even thinks about buying something from me, I freak out. And he takes a roll, a bread roll, and he says, here's my sale. He says, hello, sale. I love you, my sale, you sweet sale. And I love it and I pet it. And then I 
and he rips it to pieces. He says, I killed it. I killed my sail. Tommy boy. And then maybe a little more sobering, but Marnie pointed out this week as we talked about this text, that of, of Mice and Men, the movie or the book, uh, we see Lenny, this character who's a strong uh, adult male who has disabilities, and anytime he gets close to something, he kills it. That he has this, this pet mouse he finds, and he puts it in his pocket, and he suffocates it. And as he's crying over this mouse he's killed, his friend George says, hey, I'll get you a puppy. I'll, I'll soothe your pain and get you a puppy. Well, when he later on gets this puppy, he kills it too. I'm trying to love it. And even later on in the movie, he kills a woman. Our natural instinct, even when we're at our best, be it a sweet little year-and-a-half-old girl with her newborn brother, be it Tommy Boy, be it Lenny from Of Mice and Men, our natural tendency is to smother and strangle the things that we want to be so near to and connect to and relate to properly. We need gentleness in our lives. Yes, we can adapt. Yes, we can change. Yes, we can learn from the things that happen in our life, and we should. But as we do that, there, there gets to a point where uh, if it's simply just load management, uh, there gets to a point where uh, when we need it the most at the worst of ourselves, when we're at our worst, the hardness of our heart is too, too hard of a fire to keep fueling. It's exhausting to be bitter. And when we're at our best, we need gentleness because we just want to know connection and love and belonging. And there's a point where, yes, you can't just load manage yourself out of those two things. And that's why we need to, as people, encounter the person of gentleness. We need to go to the person of gentleness. And this is not lost on Jesus. In verse 28, he's very clear from the get-go. And he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Come to me. Jesus gets that it's tiring and laborsome and weighty to not know gentleness. He knows our need for gentleness. It's not lost on him. So the true way to fix us as persons is to encounter the person of gentleness. And this is the second idea, the person of gentleness. We all want to become more gentle. Um, it's a part of what we want. Usually we think that after the fact that things have gotten sideways, but we want to be more gentle, and we really want a playbook to do that, to accomplish that. Just give me some, some tips and, and pointers, and, and I'll make it happen. But we really can't until we encounter the person of gentleness. Us as human beings are too complex, and so we have to come up against this person of gentleness. And the only way for the fruit of the Spirit to really be evident in your life and present in your life and growing in your life is if you have the Spirit in you. And that means you have encountered the person of gentleness, the person all that the, the fruit of the Spirit speak to. So as we come to Jesus and, and see that he's the perfect uh, uh, person of all these, these attributes, we need to know that he is who he says he is. I'm not saying that he's not lying. What I'm saying is he's the totality of these descripting words. He says, come to me. 
We're called and invited to come to Jesus, to not self-actualize or correct or fine-tune or audit. We are called to just come to him. Come to me. Encounter a person outside of yourself. Come to me. Uh, And he says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Who he is, is gentleness. He says, that's that's the way I am in my heart. His heart is this, his operating system is that of of gentleness. He's lowly and accessible, but he's gentle. That's the only way he knows how to be, is gentle. It's a part of who he is. It's his natural way. Uh, There's a book called Gentle and Lowly based off these two verses. Someone wrote a whole book named Dan Ortland. I cannot recommend it enough for you. No matter how far along you are on the journey of uh, with Jesus, these things are teased out well. And in that book, he says this. He says, look to Christ. He deals gently with you. It's the only way he knows how to be. He is the high priest to end all high priests. As long as you fix your attention on your sins, you will fail to see how you can be safe. But as long as you look to this high priest, you will fail to see how you can be in danger. Looking inside ourselves, we anticipate only harshness from heaven. Looking outside, out to Christ, we anticipate, we can only anticipate gentleness. It's who he is. It's what he's like. It's the only way he knows how to be towards you is gentle. Now, being gentle and lowly can feel a bit ethereal and nebulous and kind of out there. It's, it's this nice, lofty, romantic idea, and it is. But what does it really look like? What, what does it mean? How do I know it to be true, and where do I see it? Uh, and there's a story that Jesus tells in Luke 15 of the parable of the prodigal son. It's, it's a well-known one. But in this story, we we see this dynamic played out because there's this younger brother and and this younger brother has a a father. He's he's the younger son. And he goes to his father who's wealthy and he says, Father, I want my inheritance now. Give me my inheritance now because you are, the stuff I get when you're dead is better than having you alive and having a relationship with you now. Give me the stuff as if you were dead. And the father says, okay. Gives him everything he has for his, his inheritance. And the son runs off and squanders his wealth and wastes it all and spends it all. And then all of a sudden he's with no money. All of a sudden a famine hits and he's forced to work. And he goes and he's he's feeding pigs. As he's feeding these pigs, this pig slop, he kind of has this light bulb that goes off. And here's, here's kind of what it talks about in verse 17 and on. It says, when he came to his senses, as he's feeding the pigs, he said, How many of my father's hired hands, servants, have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out to go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and went to his father. The light bulb comes off. He thinks to himself, you know what? I've really uh, done things so atrocious that I've totally burned the bridge of ever being a son again. I've screwed up too much for my father to ever see me as his son. But you know what? I know him to be good. So maybe he'll look at me and think, he could be a good servant. 
and maybe at least then I'll be taken care of a little more than I am now. I'll feel a little more human and dignified. And so he goes. And what the story tells us is that this um, prospectless, desperate, younger brother, younger son, experiences is not scorn or shame, but what happens is the father runs to him when he sees him on the horizon. It's lost on us, but in that day, an adult male never ran, ever. And yet this father runs to his son who thinks there's, it's an impossibility to be loved again. And what the father does is he says, kill the fattened calf, give me the robe, give me the rings, we're throwing a party. For my son, is he, he was gone and he was dead, but now he's here and he's alive. He's my son. The father is there to speak words of life to a son that thinks it's an impossibility. I, a son who thinks I've stripped away all of my rights because of what I've done. And yet he experiences something so opposite. And again, in that book, Gentle and Lowly, we see something beautiful that strikes this chord. And it says this, it says, we cannot present a reason for Christ to finally close his heart off to his sheep. No such reason exists. Every human friend has a limit. If we offend enough, if a relationship gets damaged enough, if we betray enough times, we're cast out. The walls go up. With Christ, our sins and weaknesses are the very resume items that qualify us to approach him. Nothing but coming to him is required. First at conversion and a thousand times thereafter until we are with him upon death. The thing that brings you to the dance is the fact that you have nothing. In the Christian life, the way you discover mercy and grace and a gentle father is when you have nothing. And then the entirety of the Christian life is the very same thing. It's the rediscovery of you have nothing and he has everything. Friends, where have you built up in your mind the fact that there's no way God could love you because of what you've done, because of what's been done to you, uh, because of the way that you are just wrong and off and you can't fix yourself. Because the, the gentle father sees you on the horizon as you come to him and he runs to you and he kills the fattened calf for you. We see the younger brother in this story, but also we see the older brother. And it's important to point out how the father's gentle with him. You can see in verse 25 and on what happens to the older brother. As this party is happening, the older brother, it, said, it says this, Now the older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called up one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but his, he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you've never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. 
and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This older son has built up in his heart the fact that he is owed something. And when that very something that he himself thinks he is owed is given to the very person who does not deserve it, it inflames his heart with anger. We see the way that the, the older brother's gentleness, you see his gentleness evident. He's, he's angry, he's despondent, he won't go in the party. He calls his brother uh, this son of yours. He has no ownership of him, no relationship. He's arrogantly disgusted. And yet the father doesn't repeat back to this older brother what he wants to hear. The father looks at him and says the most important opening words. I love you. He says, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. I love you. He gently makes it very clear to his arrogant, calloused, older son. And also he says, look at your brother the way I look at him. Have my eyes, the eyes of the gentle father. And he says, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother, this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The younger brother who's desperate with nothing and the older brother who's disgusted at getting nothing, they both get the same thing, a gentle father. The person of gentleness. What's also important to note in this story, this parable, is that for the younger brother and the older brother, what uh, the story stops with each of them after the, the father speaks words to them. The gentle father's words are closing words. They are a verdict. They settle everything. That the words that come from God to you are words of a verdict, not to condemn you, but to dignify you and give you life and rest. That's what the person of gentleness does. The words of a gentle father is a verdict. So how do we encounter this person of gentleness? And to answer that question, I'm going to ask you another question. And that question is, what place in your life do you feel the most weight? Not the highway miles that are easy, but, but the, the rigorous stop and go, stop and go, uh, the heavy ladenness, the fatigue, the, the weariness, the weightiness in life. Where is that in your life? Those are the very places that the doorways and the invitations to come as heavy laden people, weary people, to a God who says, I'm gentle and lowly. The younger brother, the weight was too much to be a shameful, a squandering son. And he knew it. And he went to his father. And for the older brother, the weight was too much to be angry. Therefore, he just had to let it out. And he was blind to it. Where are you needing the final word from a gentle father that says a verdict about you and your situation where gentleness wins the day, not your scenario and your station in life. 
The person of gentleness is that just that gentle. It's who he is. But lastly, we see uh, the product of gentleness. We, we experience Jesus as his personal gentleness, but, but the thing is, we, it makes itself evident. There's fruit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It grows. It, it, it makes itself known. And it's good. There's fruit in our life that overflows to the people around us. Paul, in his, in his writings in the New Testament, he writes to people in churches and pl- in places, and he's saying, hey, here's some really important things you should remember. Remember these truths. And then the second half of the books, after in the first half saying truths, he says, uh, and here's how kind of it looks like. Kind of live it out in this way. And repeatedly in those kind of second half, in the imperatives, he talks about gentleness. In, in Philippians 4, he says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Galatians 6 He says, uh, restore the people who have been caught in transgression with gentleness. Ephesians 4, that that, that walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called with humility and gentleness. Titus 3, remind the people to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak no evil to no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle. In the Christian life, gentleness is the name of the game. And if you try to do that on your own, you will be crushed. It'll be a factory that has no workers but you. And this invitation to be gentle is because we've experienced gentleness. We've experienced what it feels like to be gentle. And one pastor put it this way, to gain uh, strength and, and courage to offer a gentle answer, we must first be flooded with the reality that we've already received one. We can be gentle because we've been dealt gently with. We've experienced someone who is gentle towards us. And, and you've experienced this before. You have brushed up against gentle people. You know what it feels like to be dealt with gently from someone. I don't know who it is, but someone in your life and your story It could be your grandmother, it could be a coach, it could be a teacher or a friend. Whoever it is, you've experienced gentleness somewhere. And the beauty of it is that you, when you brush up against those kind of people, you you feel changed because you're treated in such a way that you long to be treated. Your heart yearns to be uh, looked at and related to in just that way. It's because they had no agenda to push or a way to change you, but they just simply wanted to engage you to who you really were. You really felt human and dignified. These are the kind of people that make you feel like the feeling you long to feel, to be reminded of of the person you really do want to be. And that's exactly what's not, uh, what God is to us. It's not lost on God. And we'll, we'll say this and we'll end up closing. We see this played out in Les Mis. We talked about Tommy Boy. Now it's time for Les Mis. Natural, natural progression. Les Mis is the story of Jean Valjean, a book and a movie. Uh, Hugh Jackman plays it most recently. But, but in, this, in this story, Jean Valjean is this... Uh, He's this prisoner. 
He's in jail for what he's done. He's stolen bread. And now he's to work off this, uh, this transgression and offense. And as he's working, he is, uh, he is inmate 24601. That is who he is. It identifies who he is. He's nothing more than a criminal. Finally, he gets out. He's done. He's paid his sentence. And he has his parole paper, and he's going all around trying to find work, and he has to show his parole paper. And finally, he just can't find work because he has this scarlet stain on him of this parole paper. As he's sleeping in the street, he encounters this priest, and this priest wakes him up and invites him in from the cold. And he says, come. And and they sit at this table, and they eat. And what, what this priest says of Jean Valjean, 24601, and he says, our honored guest, I'm looking at you like, like an honored guest. And they eat, and he offers him a bed to stay. And in the middle of the night, as everyone's asleep, uh, the, the Jean Valjean wakes up, and he assaults the priest, and, he, and then he takes uh, all the good that he can find, all the valuable things that he can find, and he steals it, and he runs off. The next day, he's found by the authorities, and they drag him back to the priest, and they say, we found this criminal, and, and, he, and he, has his, he has your stuff with him. And he's, the authorities say, he had the audacity to tell us that you gave it to him. In a moment where the, the court is fixed against Jean Valjean, the priest says, I did. I gave it to him. And in fact, Jean Valjean, you left the candlesticks behind. You forgot some of the best stuff. Here it is. The authorities leave. Jean Valjean stands up. And he really can't even look in the eye of the priest, knowing what the priest has done. And the priest says, what I've just done is I've bought your life and I've given it back to God. Go and do good. And what this does, it doesn't endow, it doesn't give to Jean Valjean this valuable stuff, this money. Uh, What it does to Jean Valjean is it ruins him. That someone treated him not as he deserved, but someone saw something in him that he didn't even see in himself, and it ruins him. And in this soliloquy, he, he sings out these words. He says, why did I allow this man to touch my soul and teach me love? He treated me like any other. This priest, he, he gave me tr- his trust, and he called me his brother. And then later on, he sings out. He says, I'm reaching, but I fall, and the night is closing in as I stare into the void, to the, as I stare into the whirlpool of my sin. I escape now from the world, from the world of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is nothing now. Another story must begin. Whoever 24601 was, whoever Jean Valjean was, saw nothing good in himself, and yet he encountered someone who said, I see really beautiful things in you, and it's going to cost me something like silver to buy it back. And it's worth it. Friends, we have had someone, the person of gentleness, say, you see nothing good in yourself, and you are tired and you are heavy laden, and I'm going to buy you back, and it's going to cost me everything, and it's worth it. 
that the God of all things says, you are beautiful, and I will make you just that. It will cost me everything, but I'm the person of gentleness to relate to you in such a way that dignifies you and makes you alive. Come to me. In light of that, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Lord, it's hard to believe that it's hard to believe that you are that. Our sin uh, seeks to indict us. The way we see ourselves seek to define us. What other people say of us really does distract us. And yet you give us a better word and a better story. Can we look at the things that vie for our attention and say that as nothing now, another story must begin? Because we've encountered you, King Jesus, the person of gentleness. You are gentle and lowly. This very day, help us in our own stories and own journeys come to you. We pray, Lord, in your name. Amen. Gentleness. You are gentle and lowly. This very day, help us in our own stories and own journeys come to you. We pray, Lord, in your name. Amen.